So Reed, what are, what are you wearing? Right now? Right now. Uh, Young Maven tee and a pair of champion shorts. Would you consider any of those things political? Do you think that you're making any statements by wearing those things that's uh, in any way transgressive or advocating for a, a particular policy? The champion shorts, no. Although I just, I like the logo and I think it says its own thing. You know, they're just like the mm-hmm. basic ones. But the Young Maven one's got hemp in it. Yeah. So I think like, I mean, I don't know if like hemp is transgressive anymore. Um, well, but, Young Maven is very, very pro-hemp. They're explicitly like the purpose of our company is to make hemp legal. Yeah, 50%, you know, hemp. And uh, I've had this thing for like, I don't know, man, seven years. And it still holds up. I climb in it. It's a good shirt. But I uh, know not, nothing's explicit. I have a repeal and go fuck yourself shirt. That was when the GOP was just trying to repeal healthcare. That's like a pretty mm-hmm. explicit political one. I, yeah, that probably I'd say so. Is anything you're wearing? What are you wearing right now? Um, I got on a Capital Snap Button Western shirt, this denim, and a uh, Picari Sweat t-shirt that my brother got me for Christmas because he knows I love Picari Sweat, or just the idea of Picari Sweat. Um, some Picari uh, Sweat sounds like a like a fragrance for the uninitiated. Kind of, it's a Japanese soft drink that uh, is designed to mimic human sweat. So, like when you're exercising, like you sweat out all these electrolytes and like uh, other vital minerals and Picari sweat is like you're drinking synthetic sweat to replace all that. Does it's, it taste like sweat? It tastes like sort of salty and like lemony. I don't know if that's for me. And it's uh, slightly opaque. It's it, it just looks like a bottle of sweat. Wow. It's delicious. I love it. Whenever I see it at a Japanese supermarket, I always buy it. I'm usually with someone that like doesn't know about it, and they're like, what the fuck are you buying? And I'm like, oh, it's great. It's weird. You'll love it. And then they drink it and go, this is disgusting. But nothing I'd say I'm wearing is all that political. I, I got some Snow Peak sweatpants and my L.L. Bean mocks. Oh, I have anonymousism socks on. I guess I should should mention the yeah, cozy ones, the, the fuzzy ones. I suppose there is some politics in like wearing moccasins and how they are slightly appropriative, especially because they came from a company that's owned by uh, a lot of Republican donors, L.L. Bean. But uh, yeah, you know, no one would see me on the street or, you know, I don't really look street worthy in my uh, black Snow Peak sweatpants, but not a political statement in what we're wearing. It's a really high privilege that you can just wear stuff and look normal and not be judged for it, which is a not a thing that a lot of people in history got to experience. Didn't uh, Bong Joon-ho put a bunch of Snowpeak in Parasite as a statement? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like all of their like outdoor uh, camping, like, camping gear, set. Right? Yeah, like the tent is Snowpeak, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the same thing. Like, I bought these at the, the Westerland sample sale, so I, I, there's no way I could have afforded them at full price. I like the Westerland sample, sample sale. I hope they have yeah. one soon, whenever, whenever vaccine happens. Who is the true Parasite but me on Westerland? I think we're like almost at the end. This might be the second to last episode. What would the last, so it would be like the 80s and then like the acid wash era and then 
I mean, like there was a moment when it was like super, like you wore the, like your tribe was the denim you wore, right? Like whether it was like true religion or fat farm or rock and Republic or Jenko or like whatever it was, Tommy or express for men, express for men. But like, there was this like era of like what jeans you wore was like kind of a person. I mean, it still is in a way, but like there's very little personality distinction between like Ironheart and I don't know, pure blue, you know, like it's like, the, oh, oh, I would disagree with you there. I'm sure you would, but like, but like, we're like getting like, like, yeah, you're splitting hairs there, but the, the personality that you imbue upon it is like what you do in it, not necessarily what the pants are. Yeah. Right. Like it's like, you might like something that Ironheart does more than pure blue or samurai or whatever, but like, ultimately like you're buying into the quality and you're buying into, you know, that, that sort of like, not necessarily history, but sort of history, whatever you want to call it, the legacy mm-hmm. of, of good denim. There was an entire period where the only thing that really you were talking, like speaking with was the logo. And this was also, I think, when Levi's probably was like for the first time, wasn't the only or like first and foremost name, right? Like when I was a kid, it didn't really, like I never really heard about Levi's. Like kids wore them, but like Wranglers were more ubiquitous because like, or like more well-known at least in my world, because of Brett Favre. Yeah, and I got jeans at Old Navy because they were cheap, and I was young, and I yeah, you know, break out of a pair of jeans in six months. I remember a history of rock and roll professor who was fucking great at University of Utah, who talked about like ones Le- like Led Zeppelin. He wrote a book about this. He's good. Robert Costa studied at like Berkeley and all the cool places. Berkeley music or Berkeley music. And then also he went to the weird mountain summit that all those people talk about going to that, like very, he's a guitar guy. I don't know, but he was talking about like the reaction to Led Zeppelin because they were like the peak artistic offering of like whatever that seventies rock was, was basically to strip everything down. And like you get ACDC and Iron Maiden and like all these like things like bands that used, and I'm butchering this, I'm sure because I don't know enough about your music, but you get like, and then punk also where you basically take all the chord progressions out and just like stick with a couple. Cause they're like, eh, we can't touch Led Zeppelin is like sort of how he looked at it, which was like, you can't beat this. But I think there's like almost this thing where it was like, there was too many options where a lot of these things were like, well, what if we just made good jeans? Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout. My name is David. I'm Reed. And we're slowly working an indigo path to the present via the history of denim. Talked about gold miners. Talked about ancient sailors. Talked about cowboys, soldiers, and poets. And today we're going to get into something a little bit heavier, and we do not mean iron hearts. Since practically its inception, denim has been a function of institutional racism in the United States. As we mentioned a few episodes ago, One of Levi's earliest selling points was that it was the only brand made by white labor. Well, today we're going to be talking about the other kind of labor, non-white and often non-paid, which is a very euphemistic way to say slavery and human bondage. Just as denim was the clothing of cowboys and bikers, it was also the clothing of enslaved people and sharecroppers. And its difficulty in finding acceptance with mainstream white America in the 1950s was arguably more to do with its association with black people than with Marlon Brando. 
And Elvis gyrating his denim-clad hips in Jailhouse Rock was not nearly as influential as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being arrested in Birmingham, Alabama in a full Canadian tuxedo and later leading the mostly denim-wearing March on Washington in 1963. We've got all that and more on today's episode where we hope to take some of the whitewashing off of the history of denim. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. So, as we mentioned early on in part two of the Denim History series, denim and indigo were inextricably linked to the sale and exploitation of enslaved people in early American history. Indigo, not a native plant in North America, and enslaved African people brought over the knowledge of how to grow it and turn it into a dye stuff for fabric. Um, so, this is the thing that there are like deep indigo traditions in Western Africa, like present day Ghana, Nigeria, and Burkina Faso. Have you ever seen those like, uh, Often, like, white and indigo-spotted tapestries. Yeah. Actually, in Ghana, I did. Oh, you spent some time in Ghana. I did. In Nigeria, a little bit. Well, not long in Nigeria, but I was there in Ghana for, like, a month after high school. And those were a lot of places. That and Kenti. But indigo was very prevalent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've been doing it there for, like, over a thousand years. Some of the dye pits still in use in Burkina Faso. Um, are like the same ones that are a thousand years old. It's got to be affected. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. We got a primer on those dye styles. I'll link that in the description. But in 1700s America, indigo was a bigger cash crop than sugar or cotton. Uh, it was used as a form of currency even before the dollar had stabilized, uh, after the American revolution and indigo cakes or pieces of indigo cloth were often used to trade on someone's life as part of the slave trade. I had the opportunity to speak with Miko Underwood, founder and designer of denim brand Oak and Acorn, about a lot of these concepts in an interview a couple months ago. As you know, my brand is really ingrained in the history of denim and being able to tell a very different and a more um, uh, authentic denim conversation of how, you know, indigo was this hidden commodity of enslavement of people in, in America, but it was a global commodity. And this enslavement and this colonization of indigo, you know, stretched throughout the world before it got to America. And this is how so many Mm -hmm. of us brown and black people have gotten to this country was because of that. And obviously through cotton and rum and everything else. But it was the growth of these plantations that brought us into America and and the the ingenuity of of the brown and black indigenous people that were here as well. And so when you when you look at how. You know, that's not something that you hear in, in in a denim story. You just hear, you know, the the traditional story of the Western or, you know, this connotation of like it being, um, you know, American blue jeans, and, you know, the everyday wear, but nothing that had so much depth in the infrastructure of how the story is told. Writing and, and discovering this history I saw my own genealogy through it. There was a lot of information that was coming to me as I was reading and researching it. And I saw the genealogy of my own family in the story of Indigo. And so I said, oh, this is a global conversation. This is not, 
you know, we're going to talk about gene making, which is a global commodity. We can't just talk about, you know, American genes and not pay homage to the people who put so much of their blood, sweat and tears. There were bloody vats of indigo coming around the world to this space. There were, you know, the value of of two yards of of fabric was uh, one person's life. You know, you cannot Mm -hmm. talk about this without really understanding what was sacrificed in order for us to just get to this point. One of the biggest, I guess, draws for this entire episode was uh, Dr. Tanisha C. Ford, uh, who had an incredible article called uh, SNCC Women, Denim and the Politics of Dress. Um, And I got a quote here from that piece of, in the early 19th century, slave owners bought raw denim and other cheap fabrics such as Osnaberg, don't really know how to pronounce that, in bulk to clothe their bondmen and bondwomen, often referring to these fabrics as Negro clothes. White Americans ensured that clothing created cultural and social difference between themselves and their enslaved work. So we had wealthy plantation owners in linen suits and parasols. They distinguished themselves from the people that they enslaved by dress as well as status. When slavery was abolished, a lot of these distinctions persisted, though, that uh, formerly enslaved black Americans didn't have a lot of other employment options in the segregated American South, and so many turned to sharecropping. Which, sharecropping, if you haven't heard of that before, is basically feudalism by another name. Like, you cultivate a plot of land that's owned by someone else, and for rent, uh, you pay the owner a percentage of whatever you grew. So, like, if you uh, had a plot of land that you wanted to grow, like, potatoes on, you would uh, have, you know, your 40 acres, and you would grow your potatoes, and then at the, like, end of the season, you would have to give, like, half of your harvest to the person who owned uh, the land, and they would take all your potatoes, and you would only get to use half of them. Uh, so they didn't have a lot of money, and they didn't weren't able to buy a lot of things, so the most common clothing of sharecroppers were blue denim overalls. So they were practical, hard-wearing, inexpensive, you know, like farmer clothes. And sharecropping also went on until, like, the 50s, like the 1950s. Like, probably through, I mean, not through it entirely, like it did in, in some capacity, but it was, like, prevalent into the 50s. Yeah, it's a thing we'll get into in a minute, but yeah, it did not, it persisted for quite some time. That the, uh, as well as the cultural association of those blue denim overalls, uh, they're about to get a lot more interesting with the coming civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. But we'll get into that a little bit more right after the break. And welcome back. After World War II, the burgeoning American manufacturing industry and increased unionization and labor rights meant that a lot more people were earning a comfortable living in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Thing that, again, talked about a lot on the Rise and Fall of Made in USA, Episode 7. You can go back and give that a listen. But this was a first for black Americans who had forever been relegated to the scraps of the American economy and the American workforce. And they used this newfound economic stability to mount a movement against the unequal treatment they received and, and frankly, still receive today. Respectability politics was a way of confronting the, the notion that white supremacist society functioned off of the false idea that black people were inherently inferior. And it cemented that idea by demonstrating their inability to assimilate into white society, which, you know, while also making it structurally impossible for them to do so 
by you know not having any uh, allowing them to accumulate any wealth or work any jobs or hold any respectable positions. So this is sort of like you know how Republicans' core belief is that government doesn't work, which they then prove by destroying all of the government they can, so it does not work. Yeah, it's like the. It's like when folks say uh, the system is broken, but usually that system is actually working as it was intended, which is ineffectively for whoever it was stated to benefit, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, like when people are like, you know, like the education system is broken. It's like, no, actually, it's working exactly as well as an underfunded institution should be. Yeah, the Jim Crow right there of just like they could not make any advancements because structurally it was designed for them not to be able to make any advancements. And the fact that they didn't make any ex- advancements was a justification for, like, that they were inferior. So, it's a very circular logic. Um, but, yeah, bad stuff, and you can see how these cycles of abuse just continue. The concept of respectability politics is that black people needed to prove that they could do everything that white society demanded in spite of all the roadblocks in their way. This presented in a variety of ways, like you had religious piety, being close to one's church, manners of speaking, and social graces. So here we got a quote from Dr. Ford again. The emphasis on respectability performed through wearing one's Sunday best and neatly pressed hair created a complicated body politics for young women activists. Movement leaders and many of the students heralded the respectable body as the most politically effective for a young activist to possess because this body was a direct affront to Jim Crow era depictions of black womanhood. The student activists projected a safe middle-class image that played well before the news cameras. The respectable body was the visible answer to the derision of white segregationists that sought to mar black women's uh, persons in an attempt to enforce the color line. The perceived political efficacy of the respectable black female body led young black women activists to invest political and aesthetic value in their Sunday best appearance. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a black civil rights organization in the 50s and 60s, women not only used their adorned bodies as physical blockades against the indignities of Jim Crow, but they also used that sartorial strategy to transgress the social hierarchy of the South that relied on dress as a marker of one's social status. Because African-Americans were supposed to be at the bottom of the social order Dressing nicer than whites was an act of defiance. Decent amount to unpack there. That the look and the appearance and the behavior of all of these black civil rights activists was inherently political because they were going to be judged at every turn and they're asking for equality of whether they deserved it or not based on how they presented themselves. And yeah, you'd see, you'd see that dress sort of that, that manifest itself. Uh, constantly. I mean, John Lewis, who was part of the, or one of the leaders in the SNCC on the bridge in Selma was wearing trench coat, button up shirt and wool slacks. It, and it probably led to, to some of the, the, I guess, strikingness of those images as well. And, and the footage was that folks in these incredibly, you know, familiar styles of dress were, were getting treated in, in completely unfamiliar ways to a lot of America. And by that, I mean just like, you know, white Americans weren't probably used to getting billy clubbed crossing a bridge. And by wearing the same clothing that they were wearing, it it brought it closer to home. Because like in denim overalls and farm work clothes were a way that that black people in the South were further alienated from mainstream society because like they didn't look like uh, white people in the way that they dressed. They didn't necessarily need to be treated like them. 
was the the line of logic there. You have organizations like the SNCC, they, they attempt to turn this on this head by dressing nicely all the time to engender more respect for themselves and thus their argument for equality. But respectability politics had its limitations. You know, as you mentioned, there are like tons of imagery of civil rights activists and suits and dresses being sprayed with fire hoses and attacked by police dogs. Uh, and many movement leaders came to realize that white supremacists would never accept them just because they dressed nicely. Uh, I'm going to quote here from the Missouri Springfield Leader and Press in 1967. No matter what the white sense of justice tells them needs to be done for Negroes, are they going to let themselves to be bulldozed into doing it? Um, and this is also a thing of like the uh, black civil rights activists were dressing by white standards of dress. And a, a thing that was realized that they were, you know, further allowing control over their own bodies to live up to these ideals of people that were actively oppressing them. Though so it was not nearly as, you know, living uh, as authentically as they felt like they could and, and not nearly as effective at accomplishing the goals that they wanted to. At the same time, their manner of dress also alienated them from the average black Americans that were still wearing denim overalls, uh, which they really needed to rally to their cause. One of the most crucial aspects of advancing the rights of black Americans was enabling them to vote. And you know, even registering to vote as a black person in the Jim Crow South could incur the wrath of local law enforcement, the Ku Klux Klan, or other white supremacist organizations. And in 1961, a Mississippi state representative, an elected official, murdered a voting rights activist, Herbert Lee, in broad daylight, a state where only 6.7% of black people were registered to vote. When the consequences for even registering to vote could be you know, losing your life, uh, many of the civil rights activists down there were having a hard time reaching the you know, average black sharecropper um, when they were wearing clothing that was very alien to those people they were trying to register to vote. So as many of those folks were wearing you know, denim and overalls, uh, were leery of people coming to their doors wearing suits and ties. Uh, even if they, you know, did look similarly, that it, it felt like they were coming from different worlds, and they didn't trust them. So many activists in the SNCC began to embrace denim and workwear instead of shunning it, and wearing the jeans and overalls instead of blazers and khakis as a way to identify with the average Black American, rather than identify with, you know, the white television viewer uh, to rally people to their cause. Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy were wearing matching denim work pants and work shirts when they were arrested in Birmingham, Alabama in April of 1963, uh, which is the same arrest that would lead to his iconic letter from a Birmingham jail. The visibility of denim in the civil rights movement would grow even further, though, with MLK's March on Washington in August of 1963, which was over 250,000 people took to the National Mall in America's capital to demand civil and economic rights for black Americans. And many of those people were workaday black Southerners who wore their denim to D.C. because, you know, that was the clothing that they had. And it was very important to note that civil rights activists and, you know, average black Americans then didn't wear denim to look cool. It was something that was, uh, you know, that all they had in demonstration almost of their oppression that we've got a quote here from Caroline A. Jones, author of Machine in the Studio, Constructing Post-War American Artists. Uh, she says of the march, uh, it was here that civil rights activists were photographed wearing the poor sharecroppers blue denim overalls to dramatize how little had been accomplished since Reconstruction. 
So just taking from that quote, it's it's important to realize that these were not styles adopted to suit their personal tastes, but rather an identity forced upon them by a racist system that many gave their lives fighting against. That you know, wearing denim uh, was to show how unequal they were being treated at the time and not something that they were picking up as a stylistic decision of you know, self-expression. For white hippies, though, it was very much about personal taste. Uh, that they wanted to be salt of the earth, and that meant adopting the all-denim look of black sharecroppers and activists, as well as that of the beat poets and other countercultural forces. It was sort of a, you know, stylistic pincer attack on America's youth. But, you know, in having these two movements come together in the same time, by the late 1960s, denim had nearly transcended its outsider status. You know, with nearly every kid and suburban dad having a pair of jeans in their closets. And denim itself began to soften up as it left the realm of workwear and pure fashion labels started making jeans. Which is what we'll get into next week. We're talking about Stonewash as we near our conclusion of our denim history series. Our alleged conclusion. Alleged conclusion. What is denim may never die. Thank you again for listening to our episode and want to give a shout out to... uh, Dr. Tanisha C. Ford. I will link her article in the description if you want to read more about body politics and the civil rights movement and denim itself. And uh, also a little plug for our upcoming program, Heddles Plus. Reed, have you heard about Heddles Plus? No, what's that? I'm so glad you asked. It is our soon-to-be-launched subscription service that will include everything Heddles, plus so much more. We're going to have product giveaways, additional long-form articles and podcast episodes, Exclusive discounts at nearly a dozen brands and stores. A private forum where you can ask questions and message me pictures of your jeans. It's launching this February, and listeners uh, here get a free trial with a code that I haven't thought of yet. But let all that marinate. It's coming soon. Heddles Plus. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, read what is our email. Blowout at heddles.com. Quick question on the uh, pictures of jeans. Are you just going to be receiving these pictures? And then is that where the communication stops or will you be discussing these pictures? We can discuss them. There's going to be a a thread there. We're called Post Your Fades. And uh, yeah, you can have them seen by me as well as all the other uh, of us that work at Heddles and uh, the other members of the community. It's like a little uh, fun insular Fade Friday, but Fade Friday can be every day. I like it. That that's coming soon. Uh, look out for Heddles Plus. But until then, my name is David. I'm Reed. And we will catch you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>